Revelation chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like a blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven in their pain and in their sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet Three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of the God, the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out from the temple, from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on the people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. This is the word of the Lord. 
Hey, just before we dive in this morning, I'll remind you that on Wednesday night we have our uh, night of Thanksgiving service here at 630, uh, here, right here in the gym, and uh, I just always put a plug in for that because it's a, uh, I'm convicted, it's a great spiritual discipline to regularly, uh, publicly give thanks for the ways God has manifested his faithfulness among us and in our lives throughout the past year, throughout our lives. This is the time of year where uh, I start to receive all sorts of scorn and ridicule because I withhold my family from um, certain festivities of the Christmas season until we have successfully navigated through Thanksgiving. So, all right, so I'm, I'm all, last night I was getting it from my family online. Friday night I was getting it from certain individuals in this church. I won't name names or stare in their direction for I don't even see her. Where did she go? She's hiding. She probably knew I was going to make a sermon illustration out. Anyway, <laughs> and, and right, but the, the whole point of that is that I actually genuinely do believe that it's a, it's a real spiritual discipline uh, that we pause regularly to publicly give thanks and acknowledge God's faithfulness. And it seems like in our broader culture, we're so quick to move past Thanksgiving and move into the season of consumption and all that sort of stuff. So I'm going to be the last stalwart for Thanksgiving, and I'll endure whatever scorn I can for. The great holidays. So 6.30, if you want to come, come on out. And I would ask you, not only just come with a list of things that you're thankful for, but actually come with a story, too. We love stories. Come with a story of how God has proven himself faithful and good and right in your life, maybe over this past year. Uh, that's always such a great blessing to me, to hear how God is showing up in the lives of my brothers and sisters. And I know we'll all benefit from that. So I'll bring that with you on Wednesday night, and we'll enjoy our time together. All right. Any questions? <laughs> All right. Um, let's see here. Let's dive in here. Okay, so it was on uh, this past Wednesday night. Our grace group was meeting, and we were actually t- talking our way through uh, a chapter in a book, which is talking about all uh, about the power, the spiritual power of habit in our lives. And as we were talking our way through this book, as we read this this one little chapter, um, he, he quotes the author quotes a commencement address. It was given by David Foster Wallace at Kenyon College, I think back in 2006. It's an address that I've actually quoted from on more than one occasion here at church, partly because it's such a poignant address, and and partly because it's a poignant address coming from somebody who would consider himself, I think, generally non-religious, depending on how you define that. And, And it was given in a secular context. right? And this address... It's Foster Wallace trying to explain to these graduates what is the real benefit of their education, right? And about, I don't know, towards the end of his address, he says, essentially, he says, look, there's this strange and curious thing about life in the trenches of adult life. Like in the trenches of adult life, he says, there actually are no atheists. Or more specifically, he says, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Right? That that is our default setting. That's who we are. That's what we do. We just worship stuff. We take things and we elevate them to divine status in our life. We define ourselves by that. We find our ultimate meaning and satisfaction by those things. And we live our life in worship of these things. And he, he went on to say, and this is again very poignant, he said that the vast majority of these things that we worship, they will eat you alive. He says, if you worship money, you will go through life never having enough, or at least never feeling like you have enough. He said, if you worship beauty, 
and your personal self-image and your sexual allure or whatever, you will go through life feeling ugly. And as time and old age set in and work their effects on your life, he says you will die a thousand deaths before they actually put you in the ground. Where he says if you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will constantly need more and more power over other people just to assuage your fears. Or if you worship knowledge, you will always feel intellectually uh, inferior. You will feel a fraud. You will feel always on the verge of being found out. And he says, you know, we should know this by now because this is the the, the storyline behind so many of our epic myths and stories as a culture. Or it's the storyline behind so many public celebrities who live their life in in the public view. But he says, this is the most insidious thing about these idols that we worship is that they're subconscious or that they're hidden. For him, it's not that they're sinful or evil. Right? That's a whole other separate conversation. The most insidious thing about them for him is that they're subconscious. There are, they are our default mode or the things that we slip into day by day as we more selectively choose what we see and identify and give ultimate value to. Right? And this happens almost unaware. Right? His whole, well, let me, let me read one more little part of that line for you from he actually says this and then in the so-called real world he says will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world that all these guys are about to enter into the real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in the pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self And so really his whole point in this address is to say, look, this is the value of your education, not just mere head knowledge, but you would have the tools to be aware of this hidden systems and schemes of worship. If you're not careful, we'll eat you alive. And he actually closes his address by saying this is unimaginably hard to do, to stay conscious and alive in the adult world day in and day out. Again, a poignant message. (laughs) from an irreligious person to a secular audience. And why it's poign- part of the reason it's poignant is, uh, if you ask me, this is part of what Revelation aims to do. Right? And we talk about this all the time. Right? What is po- one of the goals of the book of Revelation? It's to pull back the curtain of not just life in the future, but life in the here and now, life in the past, right? this whole period of time, to pull back that curtain so that you can see, yeah, there are these forces at play that vie for your worship that vie for your allegiance, that want to captivate you into rooting your identity and your sense of meaning and value and contentment and satisfaction in these things. And if you're not careful, these things will eat you alive. And so part of the goal of the book of Revelation is that you would stay awake, alert to that. In fact, our text actually says that. Right, did you catch that? If you have one of those Bibles with red lines in it, there's only one little section that has the, uh, the red text in it. It comes in verse six, 15 where he says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on so they may not go about naked and be seen exposed. We'll talk about that second part as we get in this. But for me, that's the part of the message I really want to drill down on. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Right, the book of Revelation does this all the time. Right? There's this cacophony of images and pictures and action and drama. And sometimes you're working your way through it. Your head is spinning because you can't keep up with it all. And then 
like just, just for a second, like the clouds part, and then boom, here comes the message for you. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps your clothes on. Right? And that's what I want to aim at. And part of the reason I want to aim at that is because I guess the, long, the, the deeper into the book we go, it's starting to feel like a very pastoral book to me. Maybe in more ways than it has in the past. Like it feels to me like a parent who, you know, who maybe is going to their child, who they just see certain things in their life that have a grip on them, that are starting to become unhealthy, and they're trying to put some limits or some restraints or some restrictions or maybe pull something back off the table, whether it's, I don't know, screen time or phones or video games or junk food or maybe certain relationships, I don't know, whatever, right? And maybe as you start to have that conversation with your child, they start to push back a little bit and it starts with logical reasoning. Come on, this is okay. It's not a big thing. And then as you keep going and you're not flinching, well, now they start to say things like, well, you're being, this is unfair. And you're being mean and you're being, I don't know, just cruel. And you just want to ruin my, none of my kids would ever say anything like this. But I'm assuming this is happening. I've heard this happens elsewhere. You're being mean and cruel and critical. And it's like you want to grab them and you want to say, no, 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 that's not it at all. I'm doing this because I love you. I'm doing this because I see things in your life that I'm worried about. I'm doing this because I see things that you don't see. I know things that you don't know, and I want to protect you. I don't know. That's part of what I feel as I'm working through the book of Revelation, and that's what I want to draw out of this line. Blessed is the one who stays awake. This interruption into this text of all this judgment for this line. Stay awake. Keep your clothes on. So let's talk about it. Uh, we've mentioned how we're, we're moving into sort of the last quarter of the book, which is really ramping up to the final judgment, the final exhaustive judgment of God and his creation, right? The time when he's going to come and purge his creation of all that resists his goodness, his rightful reign, right? All that has plunged the world into violence and hatred and injustice, his judgment upon those systems, those systems of false counterfeit gods, and even his judgment on those who persist to the very end to align themselves with all of that. You know, and as you've been working through the book of Revelation, you've seen various judgment scenes along the way. Some of you, like me, for so long, right, you... You start to do the math and you say, wait a minute, the math doesn't add up here. How are there any stars left in the sky or any trees left on the planet or any oceans or seas that haven't been told or any people that are left standing? Because, you know, it's like first a third and then another third and now they're exhausted. It almost seems like there's nothing left. And hopefully by now you, you are starting to know, anticipate my response to that. But the reason for that is because the book of Revelation, again, it doesn't just unfold linearly. Like one scene after another, after another, right? It, it circles back around on itself. And we get multiple angles and multiple vantage points, multiple viewpoints in on the same event or the same period of history or whatever. And the same thing here in relation to the judgment. We're going to get multiple looks at the judgment of God. And it's going to look different from each different angle, right? From one angle, it looks like God stomping out the wine press, the fury of his wrath. You know, we'll see next week that from another angle, it looks like the beast and the false prophet turning on those who have devoted their allegiance to them and and burning them alive. Or maybe from another angle, it looks like a great gathering for a great battle, whether it's uh, in the flatlands of Megiddo or whether it's in the plains surrounding the camps of God, the end of chapter 20. 
Or, as we have in today's chapter, it looks like temple servants grabbing these seven bowls and dumping them out on God's creation. Right? And, and so part of the, the trick of Revelation is looking at all these different angles. Okay, what am I meant to take from this look in at this event or at God's judgment? What am I meant to take a look in from this angle? Right? So that's the question today. What are we meant to take from this symbolic action of these temple attendants taking these bulls and dumping them out on the earth? That's the question. Start. And to answer that question, uh, we'll play by some Bible trivia again. This should be an easy one. Where have we seen this before? In the text, where have we seen uh, waterways turn to blood, or the sun go dark, or boils on the skin, or frogs jumping all over the place, right? Where have we seen this? Hailstones. Yes, plagues in Egypt, right? This is what, again, this is what apocalyptic literature does. It borrows imagery from stuff in the past, gives it a nice symbolic meaning to convey something. So think with me. What were those plagues in Egypt all about, right? That great redemptive act from the Old Testament where God comes and delivers his people through these ten plagues. What were the plagues for? Okay, yeah, there you go. You actually jumped one ahead of me. <laughs> I'll get to that one in a section. In a second. First of all, it was, it was an act of deliverance, right, of God's people, right? He sends Moses to Pharaoh, say, hey, let my people go. He won't do it, so I'm going to send these plagues. And remember, too... That it wasn't just to deliver them from slavery and oppression so they could live free, independent lives, however they want to do that. If you go back and you read the text, it's always so that they would be set free to come worship God. Or to celebrate a feast to God. Or offer sacrifices and offerings to God at his holy mountain. Right? It's always deliverance from the oppression of Egypt and their gods to now life in worship with the living God. Okay? It's part of it. But then the second one, the second reason, you have these interesting scenes where God will say to Moses, hey, go to Pharaoh, tell him, let my people go, but here's the deal, I'm going to harden his heart so that he won't do it, and then I'm going to send another plague. And you say, well, what in the world is that all about? And you think about it, right, these Israelites, for 400 years, for generation upon generation upon generation, all they had known was the Egyptian way of life. And maybe some stories that they'd heard about the God of their forefather, Abraham. But other than that, all they knew was the Egyptian way of life and how the world worked according to the Egyptian system. And all the power and the might and the prosperity of the Egyptian empire. And then the temples and the, and the rituals and the shrines that were set up to the gods who had supposedly given Egypt all of this stuff, right? And so think about this. Now the living God is about to call these people out. To worship him alone in a wilderness, right? And, you know, you get out in the wilderness and when, you know, the belly starts to grumble and you feel tired and we're supposedly onto this route to this great land. But, man, this is really getting hard. Can you easily see how the temptation would be? Oh, man, you know. Man, I remember those Egyptian gods, how they gave all this power and wealth and might to the Egyptian empire. Maybe if we just bowed down and worshiped to those gods, we would get some better food than all this quail or whatever we got going on here in the wilderness. So what is God doing in this place? He's publicly humiliating the Egyptian gods. Pronouncing judgment, as Job said, upon the Egyptian gods, right? When, when he turns the Nile into blood, that's judgment against the gods of the Nile. And when he causes the sun to go dark, right, that's a judgment against Ra, the Egyptian sun god. 
or when he sends all these frogs to wreak their havoc throughout the land of Egypt, right? That's exposing the fraudulence of the Egyptian gods of Hecht and uh, I forget Amon, whatever that, that that were symbolized by frogs, quite literally, right? The idea being, right, so the people remember that God judged them that way. And, oh, yeah, no, our God is the supreme one. Okay, and that's part of the similar thing going on here. Right, part of the picture here in Revelation 16, one of the angles that we're supposed to see of this judgment is that the day is coming when God is going to show himself sovereign and supreme over all these other things that maybe people were tempted to entrust their lives to, to look to for their prosperity and their security. And he's going to judge those systems and remove them from his creation. Actually, if we dove in, you can see this in a couple ways throughout the text. Like, for instance, when you know, he turns the waterways to blood and all the living creatures in that die up. Right, on one angle, you can look at it and say, what's the point of that? That seems kind of pointless. Actually, we won't, you don't fully get a sense of that until you move into chapter 17. We've been introduced to this character of Babylon, this great wicked city that is going to receive judgment. And it's not until chapter 17 and 18 where we get the more formal introduction to Babylon and we dive into the, all the intricacies of Babylon. But the first thing that's mentioned about Babylon when we're introduced her, to her she's called a whore, so we're called saying her, is that she sits on many waters, right? So the waterways were like the lifeblood of Babylon. So God is coming to pronounce judgment on that. And as you read further on in chapter 17 and 18, and judgment is falling on Babylon, the merchants of the sea are weeping and wailing and mourning because as Babylon and her waterways fall, now the ways that they had grown prosperous and wealthy, all that's dying as well too, Right? I want to say that when God turns these waterways into blood, cuts off the lifeblood, kills off what is making these merchants rich and wealthy, that's part of what's going on here. God is showing himself sovereign and superior to all these other things they've entrusted their lives to. Or when he comes and he dismantles the throne of the beast... The beast, right? You remember who, from the moment its seven heads started perking up out of the abyss, people were, oh, wow, look at the beast. And they're worshiping the beast. And they're saying, who is like the beast? And who can stand against the beast? God is coming to pronounce judgment on the throne of the beast. And when he drives up the river Euphrates, kind of like he dried up the Red Sea, only this time it's different. When he drives up, he drives up the river Euphrates so that the kings from the east have access to come join the kings of the West. And, and then what happens is, man, as, as Matt read it so well, you've got the, the dragon and the beast one and beast two, the false prophet, who starts spewing these demonic spirits of lies, right? And it's like shown as these frogs that go around and deceive the nations to come get all their strength and all their military might and all their power and all their defenses and come across the Euphrates and to gather with the kings from the West. Ironically for their, their demise, right? Oh, which by the way, let's talk about this here. Where do they gather? Did you pick it up in the text? Armageddon, right? That great, uh, you know, site of that future final battle. 
Uh, Armageddon comes from the Hebrew word Har Megiddo, which literally means Har Mount of Megiddo. I think I actually have a picture of it. Do we have it, fellas? <laughs> yeah, this is from uh, when, when I got to go to Egypt, or not Egypt, Israel, uh, back in the spring. Yeah. Uh, this is, these are the plains of Megiddo. This is taken from, actually from the top of Mount uh, Armageddon, right? Mount Megiddo. And so here's the interesting thing about this. Uh, there actually never was, and still isn't, really, a Mount Megiddo. <laughs> okay, you're, uh, you're, you can tell it's kind of low, so the best you could call it is, a, is sort of a hill. And the interesting thing is that um, it's not a natural hill. It's a man-made hill, right? Because this has been a place for thousands of years and generations upon generations where massive conflicts have been fought. Right, a, civilization will, a civilization will come in and establish their city here in Megiddo. And then there will be a big battle. And that city will be overtaken and be demolished to the ground. And another civilization will come in and build their city over top the same one. And there are multiple civilizations. Do you, you remember how many was there? 17 civilizations, all on this one site. So it's actually a very fascinating historical site. Like, as you're walking up this hill, like, you're moving through, like, the remains of actually very, a whole ton of ancient civilizations that have just been built on top of each other. So that's, that's, you now have this hill over which you can look at, and you just see this massive plains of Megiddo. And this sits right on the... Uh, the eastern edge, well, sort of like the eastern edge of the Mediterranean. If you would turn around and look the other direction, you could see the Mediterranean Sea. Well, maybe not because there's hills behind you, but it's just over the hills there. And so this was very fertile land. Uh, This is prime real estate uh, that would often get fought over, especially if you were from the desert areas in the south or the desert areas to the east. And this is also prime real estate for defense reasons. Right? If you're one of the kingdoms of the empires north of the Mediterranean and you want to conquer the, some of the kingdoms south of the Mediterranean, well, you're not going to take all your boats across. You're going to come around it through this, the, the plains of Megiddo. And so there would often be conflicts right in here. Uh, this land changed hands many, many times. And it's also a great battlefield, right? You've got mountains to the, what is that, to the east as you're heading towards... Um, that's the north? Oh, yeah, see, I don't know. So anyway, but there's mountains all around. And then you've got this massive plain section here. This is where you're going to fight a battle if you're going to have a battle, right? So you can, if you want to hold to, this is where the literal climactic battleground is going to take place. That's fine. You can do that. Or if you want to have it as a more symbolic view that everybody reading would have known, this would be the place where everybody gathers and we fight it out. And this is the symbolic place and time where God is going to gather all the strength, all the might, all the defenses of the nations, all the power of these systems that have pledged their allegiance to the beast, gather them in one place and show his supremacy. And actually, in these seven bowls, we don't even get any description of the battle. The seventh angel comes, dumps his bowl, and then we get the voice. Done. Psh. Flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, earthquake unlike any, hailstones come, the great cities fall, the systems collapse, the people are judged, And it's done. The end. But do you see the point? God is saying, okay, take all these things. 
that you have bowed yourself to and you've looked to for your prosperity or you've looked to for your security or your comfort or your hope or whatever it is. Gather it all in one place and I'm going to show my supremacy over these. I'm going to judge it and I'm going to remove these systems from my good creation. And so then here's the charge. So stay awake. Be mindful. Be alert that there are these systems of idolatry. There are these idols out there that vie for your worship, that vie for your adoration, that, that, I don't know, that vie for your trust, whatever it is. Like, stay awake to that. I come like a thief in the night. Stay awake. Stay alert. Keep your clothes on. Let's talk about that finally. <laughs> Why? What the, what the deal with the keep the clothes on? Right? Is this thief going to come and steal all of my clothes so that if I don't go to bed with my clothes on, I'm not going to have any clothes when he comes? Or is it when the rapture comes, if, I, if it happens in the middle of the night and I happen to be sleeping without my clothes on, I'm going to get raptured in my underwear or whatever? And, oh, you know, no, I, I, I don't think that's the picture here. This is, again, drawing from all sorts of imagery from the Old Testament, especially the prophets, where idolatry was equated to the shame of nakedness. Uh, my very first sermon as pastor here. Well, we could play some real trivia. Anybody remember that? <laughs> Almost seven years ago. Can you believe it? Some of you are saying, yeah, we can believe it. <laughs> Almost seven years ago, my very first sermon here was from Ezekiel 16, which is all about a prostitute. <laughs> a very curious sermon to launch in on, right? But it's judgment on this great prostitute who has gone around and played the whore with all these surrounding nations and their surrounding gods, has used her own nakedness to lure and seduce the surrounding nations and their gods. Right? The sad thing is, is it's God's own people. It's a statement about Israel who's played the whore. And so God's actually coming in judgment on his own people. And part of that judgment is he's going to expose her nakedness, the shame of her nakedness before all of her false lovers. And I think that's the picture here. All throughout the book of Revelation, right? The relationship with the God and his people is portrayed as this relationship between a groom and a bride, right? It's portrayed as what it is, what it is, this covenant relationship between God and his beloved people. And so, you know, here's, here's the charge. Stay awake, be on the lookout for my coming and don't give yourself in the meantime to false lovers, to these counterfeit gods who come and woo you and vie for your love and your affection and your trust. And so there it is. I think there's the charge. You know, there's the charge to the church. You know, to stay true to the worship of Christ. This is our call to the very end, to endure in faithfulness. You know, there's this other part in here where, you know, part of the reason the church is called to do that is because the rest of the world is totally seduced and totally hooked and totally enslaved and totally addicted to these idols, right? Do you pick it up in here? Whereas God is tearing down these systems of idolatry and even turning some of these idols back on the, the people and they're, and they're in torment over the agony of darkness or, or whatever, yet they don't what? They don't repent, or they don't turn, or they don't let go, and they curse God instead for you taking these things away from us, like, you know, like the parent that comes to their child and trying to place restrictions or trying to take away harmful things from them. And my guess is it's not quite often that your child responds, 
O mother, faithful and just are all your ways. I joyfully and thankfully doth give back to you what you ask of me. No, right? There's, it, it responds in rage. <laughs> At least I see this, Jeffrey, you know. It'd be sad if it weren't so cute, but you take something from Jeffrey these days, or you get in his way, and it's literally, you think like something's going to pop out of his neck. But anyway, that's sort of the picture you have here, right? God, as he's coming, and as he's systematically showing his sovereignty, yet the people hold tight and won't turn, won't repent. So part of the job of the church is to be the shining light of the glory of Christ in the now. Right? What's the fundamental image of the church in the book of Revelation? It's a light post. Right? A lamp. We shine light in a world that's drowning in darkness. Right? And so how do we do that? We make sure our lives, like we talked about last week, are lived in participation with all the heavenly choirs that are extolling the glory and the virtues and the beauty of the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And we make sure that our life and our public witness and our public testimony is always to the Lamb. That we follow the Lamb wherever He goes, however He goes. And we live like the Lamb. We don't fight beast with beast or power with power. But we live like the Lamb because He's worthy of it. And, he is, and that is the glory and the beauty of all creation right there. Right? And again, see this line here is given to the church. Uh, if you remember back when we were going through some of the cycles of seven in the book of Revelation, right? Revelation is divided structurally into all these cycles of seven. And do you remember when we were working through some of these cycles of seven that in between the sixth and the seventh cycle, there's always a pause. Well, there's always an interlude. Sometimes it's a long extended interlude. Sometimes it's short. And it's always a message to the church, right? Well, where does this word come this word to stay awake and keep your clothes on comes right in between the sixth and the seventh. <laughs> Almost like uh, disruptingly so, right? They gather the kings from the east, come over the river Euphrates. They gather, behold, I'm coming, stay awake, keep your clothes on. And they gathered at Armageddon and the seventh angel came and he dumped his, right? That's the message. And who is it to? It's to the church. So often we read the book of Revelation and we think it's just the, Unfolding of stuff for people, rebels, and sinners in the last days, which there's part of that for sure. But don't miss that by and large, this is a message that Christ intends for the church to receive. This whole book, it's a call to faithful endurance. Stay faithful, stay alert, stay awake to these systems that vie for your worship. And don't buy it, don't fall down that, don't be caught naked. Stay faithful, endure in your worship of me and of the Lamb. And so there's a simple charge for you this morning. And I would encourage you to take that charge. Think it through. Right? I would encourage you regularly to take inventory of your life at the end of the day and pray, you know, that prayer at the end of Psalm 139 where the psalmist says, Search me and know me, O God. Try me. Know my heart. See if there be any grievous way in me. See if I'm on the road or following any grievous thing that is not of you. And instead... Turn me around and lead me in the way of everlasting. Stop and take inventory of your life. Are there things that you can see very clearly, or or maybe not so clearly, are vying for your love, for your worship, for your identity, for your security, whatever it is? Are there things in your life where you can identify, yeah, if, if this thing was taken from me, 
uh, my life would just evolve into a pit of rage and despair. Or, or take a look, at, you know, is there any sin in your life that you're struggling to kick and you keep returning to it over and over? You know, one question to ask of that, well, underneath that, is there something that I am desperately in love with and it feels threatened and so I fight for it? Or it's commanding certain things in me and so I bow in obedience to it. Is there a certain... Sadness, despair, fear, anxiousness, whatever that is just weighing heavy on your life. Part of that could be circumstances and situations. Part of that could be sin that other people are inflicting upon you. Part of that could be biochemical reactions in the brain. Part of that could be, like David Foster Wallace says, that maybe there's a false love in there that's eating you alive. And you need to consider that and acknowledge that and bring that before the throne of God's mercy. Do that regularly. Stop and take that inventory. Stay awake. Stay alert. Man, talk about it with your grace groups. This is a great topic to talk about as a grace group. You know, what are some of the common hidden idols of 21st century modern suburban American culture? Independence, power, security, whatever it is. I don't know. Talk about it. And then put your own life on the table and say, hey, do you see any place in my life where I am being tempted and allured by something that is not of Christ and I'm giving myself to that too much? Do you see my testimony to the beauty and the glory of Christ in any way being compromised because of my false loves or my false worship? Take inventory, stay awake, stay alert. You know, and if by chance you're here this morning and uh, you're new to Christ, church, Christianity, or you're just checking out, or you're just curious about it, first of all, welcome, we're glad you're here. <laughs> Kudos to you for sticking through a sermon on the book of Revelation, one of the more difficult books to work your way through. I think part of the general message is, again, exactly what David Foster Wallace would have said to that commencement group, right? That there are these forces in life that vie for your worship, that vie for your identity, that vie for your trust. And at best, they aim to eat you at live. At, At worst, right? They would aim to make you purveyors of injustice and violence and hatred book of revelation would have you consider that you weren't made to worship those things it might be perfectly good things but you weren't made to worship them you were made to worship your creator and there's where life hums there's where life is found to the full right and the book of revelation would want to draw that curtain back even further and show you that one day god is going to come and prove himself and better not to wait till that day You know, and I would say to you as well, too, and we talk about this a lot here, and I think Foster Wallace would say this as well, too, right? Again, you consider these false idols, and they'll eat you alive, especially if you fail them. We talk about that a lot here, right? If your God is money, and you root your identity in that, and you lose your job, what happens to you? Right? Or if you're, or if you're, or if you're, um, Whatever, if, you're, if your God is beauty and self-image, well, and as you start to get old <laughs> and time sets in and does what it normally does, what happens to you? And you start to fail the God of beauty, what happens to you? Or if your God is power, right? You're going to live in fear and weakness and ever always need more and more power so you can hold that over people. And what happens if you lose some of that power? What happens to you? Oftentimes it crushes us. 
you know, I don't take it lightly that David Foster Wallace, his, his, his story is a living example of that. Struggled with depression all of his life, found some relief from that through medication that really helped him in his writing and things. But then he came to a point in his life where for other medical reasons he couldn't take that antidepressant drug. And right, that depression just came in and weighed over time and he could not find freedom from it. Till one morning he woke up, wrote a note to his wife, tidied up some manuscripts, went out to his back porch and hung himself. Right? If, you're, if your God is these created things that you are meant to enjoy but not to worship, they will eat you alive. They'll crush you, especially if you fail them. On the other hand, consider the glory of Christ. And when you fail him, day after day, and you give yourself to these false lovers, and you go parading yourself, whoring yourself after these other gods, what does this Christ do? He lays down his life. You know, part of the other symbolism in this chapter that we didn't really get to touch on, this, these bowls, this actually comes from the Old Testament, from the, from the book of Leviticus, where the, the attendants, the priests in the temple, literally would take blood, and they would dump it on the altar, splatter on the wall, splatter on the ground. They would do it seven times. They would take these bowls of blood, and they would dump it, scatter it everywhere, partly as part of the sacrificial system, as a result of all the violence and hatred and justice, blood needed to be shed, but also because... You know, blood was literally the lifeblood. And as creation was being marred by people's sin, right, blood is scattering almost like as a cleansing agent as well too, right? And so you take that imagery, right, and you look at what's about to come at the very end, but then you go to the climax of the whole story and you see an even more powerful image where you see Christ himself in light of all of our failures and all of our spiritual prostitution throws himself in the way of God's wrath. And first comes and drinks the cup of God's wrath to its very, to the dregs, right? And who says, let my blood be poured on the altar as atonement for the sins of my people. Let my blood be scattered throughout creation so that it might result in new resurrection life. And see, when you pause and you consider that, man, it just makes you, why in the world would I give myself in worship of any other counter, cheap counterfeit knockoffs? Right, there's the beauty, there's the glory. I give myself in worship. And that's maybe just the closing call for all of us. Right? As you try to break free from false worship, it's not a matter of, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to buck myself up. It's about seeing the glory and the beauty. That's what Revelation is all about. See the glory and the beauty of the Lamb. Hear the choir singing. Consider all that he has done for you in this wild sacrificial love. And that's what will begin to soften and change your heart. Close with a hymn, as I often do. When we were out in Gettysburg, we used to have, at our previous church, we occasionally would have song nights. A bunch of young people come together, and we just sing songs and hymns. And they always wanted to sing this, this very ancient hymn that had a new tune. Hast thou heard him, seen him, known him? Anybody know that hymn? <laughs> come on, where's our hymn lovers in here? <laughs> uh, it's a very old hymn, very... Uh, and they always wanted to sing this song, which is... Very curious to me, but the chorus is um, captivated. No, never mind. Yeah, captivated by his beauty, worthy tribute, haste to bring. Let his peerless worth constrain thee. Crown him now, unrivaled king. And then the verses are what has stripped the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth. 
Not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth. Or the other verse, this is my favorite verse. Tis that look that melted Peter. Tis that face that Stephen saw. Tis that heart that wept with Mary that can alone from idols draw. And then the closing verse. Draw and win and fill completely till the cup overflow the brim. What have we to do with idols who have companied with him? So there's a call for you. Stay awake. Keep your clothes on. How do you do that? Keep company with the king until he comes. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.